welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, thank you. I'm Buddy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. My sobriety date is December 2nd of 1997. What it was like. Uh, I was five years old, and my daddy offered me a bottle of Rolling Rock beer. Rolling Rock at that time made these little seven-ounce bottles. And I, I took the bottle, and he also put a shot of whiskey on the table. And I, I sipped that, and, oh, that was horrible. But I, I loved the beer. And, and I walked across the room, the living room, and I sat in a corner, and I nursed that bottle of beer. And it made me feel wonderful. And I looked at my dad, and I just felt in my heart the sensation of warmth, tenderness, caring, and, and I guess we could call that love. And it was the last time I remember experiencing that feeling. When I was eight years old, my my 14-year-old sister took me and my 14-year-old brother swimming in a river. My brother drowned. I nearly drowned. And when we got home, she obviously had to tell my parents that Richie drowned. But she made no mention that I was rescued, that I had also nearly drowned. I started having physical pain, belly pains. Um, I did not want to go to school. At that time, no one talked about my brother's drowning. I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. My mom took me to a family doctor who gave me paragoric for my stomach pains. The base product in paragoric is opium. And this was pretty routinely given to children back then. It, it was given to stop diarrhea, um, which, which narcotics will do. They shut the, the system down. I was on that for three months. Um, when that was stopped, my body went through physical withdrawal from the opium addiction that I now had. I didn't understand any of this. All I knew was that I felt that I did not matter. I felt neglected. I felt abandoned. In my family, we never talked about my older brother. Now that he was gone, it was as if he was never born. Trying the best I could, I, I, I tried to get my head wrapped around this feeling of inadequacy, and, and I never had any success. What seemed to relieve it, though, was in school, in sixth grade, 
we were being taught sex education and I felt a bodily sensation of stimulation just hearing about this stuff. And I went home after school and I tried to, to do my homework with my sisters. I tried to have sex with my sisters. I was unsuccessful. I looked at my little brother who was about three years of age and I tried to have anal sex with him. That was unsuccessful also. The feelings, though, that I got from that was this tremendous sense of shame and guilt. I remember sitting on my bedroom floor and I was terrified to leave my bedroom because I, I, I thought that if one just looked at me, they would be able to see right into me and, and to know what I had just tried to do. Alcohol, my next drink, I was 15. And alcohol provided me with, once again, this, this feeling of somehow things being okay. And my drinking at, at 15 started, and very quickly it became a regular event. I discovered drugs right along with that, diet pills. I discovered meth. And that, that became my life. I had an idea of taping a bag of meth with a, a line into my vein and a little valve on it, and that's how I wanted to live my life. It made me feel normal. I had not yet discovered pornography, but I knew I was attracted to girls, and there's this chemical reaction when I would look at a girl and think she's pretty. I got myself a girlfriend who was very pretty. She was 15 years old. We started having sex right away, and she got pregnant. Um, at that time, the solution was take her to New York and get an abortion. And that's what we did. Um, after that, I discovered pornography. I love pornography, and, and, and the girls in the magazine, they couldn't get pregnant. But that didn't stop me. When I was 19, I got another girlfriend, got her pregnant, and another abortion. All this just kept piling guilt on top of shame, on top of guilt. And the underlying issues there, it wasn't that I felt inadequate. I felt completely that I did not matter, period. I felt not un unworthwhile. I felt worthless, completely unworthy. The addiction with the drugs and, and the alcohol just continued to spiral out of control. When I hit age, age 25, I stumbled into AA. I got a sponsor right away. He was a fella. He had a cast from his toes all the way up to his hip. I asked him what happened. He said he was in a tree with a set of binoculars. He was looking in some girl's window, and I knew this man's going to sponsor me. We can, <laughs> we can relate. Um, he got me started on the steps right away. I got up to step four. He told me about the seven deadly sins, and I did my best to convince him there's only six of them. Lust is not a deadly sin. 
I needed lust to get out of bed in the morning. I needed lust to go to sleep at night. And and that was the way I lived in AA for, for 17 years. I sponsored men, sponsored a lot of men, sponsored a woman, staying sober from alcohol and drugs, but just could not get in touch with that lust was a problem. It started to become clear in through the years, but in in '97, it started to become real clear. My sister-in-law and my brother-in-law had stopped at our house. They were on their way to a wedding. I had a mild interest in photography. I got this brilliant idea. I was going to propose to my sister-in-law to let me take pictures of her in her nice little wedding dress there, that, that the little black thing she was wearing. And I stood up, and I was about to make this proposition to her, and something said to me, what's wrong with this picture? And something clicked. And I sat back down, kept my mouth shut, and my sister-in-law and my wife looked at me like, we, what? You were about to say something? And, and I just tried to make myself disappear. I recognized I had a problem. I, someone had given me a book about sex addiction. I read the book. I identified everything in it. In the back were a list of 12-step fellowships. I contacted one S fellowship, found out where a meeting was, and at my first meeting, there was a woman speaker, and she talked about stalking an ex-boyfriend. She talked about the obsession, the intrigue, and I knew this, this was me. Here's a woman telling my story. I started coming to a lot of those meetings, but what I saw was there was no sobriety. I, I knew what sobriety should look like. I've got years sober in AA. I understand that if one has a sex addiction, maybe one should not be acting out in the addiction. But the meeting seemed to be just a dumping ground where one could come and dump their guilt and go back out and act again. And someone in that meeting told me about SA. On December 1st of 97, my wife is in bed. I'm laying on my living room floor watching something on TV, and I'm acting out. Meanwhile, my sister-in-law was in the hospital giving birth to twins. And I'm thinking, like, what is wrong with me? Like, my life is it's in the pits. What is wrong with me? The next day, I came to an SA meeting, and I heard the problem inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. I identified that is how I had been living since I was eight years of age. I understood alone. I understood afraid. I grew up in an alcoholic house. I grew up in a violent neighborhood in North Philly in the 1960s. Kids were getting killed left and right with zip guns, with knives, with baseball bats. It was just insane, and I was terrified to go out of the house, and I was terrified by my father 
so I didn't want to stay in the house. I understood all of that, inadequate, unworthy, alone and afraid. And SA promised me that there was a solution. I got a sponsor right away. He's still my sponsor today. Um, some of you people in the Philly area of Montgomery County might know Peter. Sometimes we call him St. Peter. I told Peter, you're going to sponsor me. If you say no, God's going to take away from you that free gift that he gave you. <laughs> but what could Peter say <laughs> other than yes? He did. We got right to work on the steps. I started working my way through them, got involved in service. We were making conventions, the internationals, marathons. We got a prison meeting started, ran for about four years in the Philadelphia prison system. But all this time, in my head, my head's clearing up, but in my heart, I'm still not feeling connected in my heart. I'm still feeling there's something missing. There's something wrong here with me. But I determined I'm going to keep on coming back. Depression. I had this since I was eight years of age, and it just kept getting worse. I talked to my family doctor. He told me, he can tell me for years I needed medication. I looked in the big book, and it said that we avail ourselves of, of the medical profession, so I did. And it helped for a little while, but something was still disconnected in my heart. I still could not feel happy, joyous, and free. Make a long story short, at the 2019 International Convention in Madrid, I was there and I found myself isolating from the fellowship. I'm surrounded by, there are about 300 of us there. And I'm isolating and I ask myself, what is wrong? And it finally started to sink in that the problem was that I had untreated PTSD from my near-death experience and from the violence that I grew up in all those years. I sought out a therapist who had experience, and in one of our first sessions, she asked me, she looked me in the eyes, she asked me point blank, point, point blank, I'm sorry, point blank, do you matter? And I looked at her in the eyes, and I, I what do you mean, do I matter? Of course I don't matter. And I started crying, and I realized that that was my core self, that I'm 64 years of age, I'm 21 years sober in SA, I got decades of AA sobriety, but in my core, I don't believe that I matter. And what came to me was Roy's story how when he was eight years old and he told his mom about his first experience with masturbation and she shamed him. And he speaks of pulling a curtain down and separating 
from his mom of becoming disconnected and then of disconnecting from himself. And it, it finally started to sink in that that's what I was experiencing. I had become spiritually, emotionally, and physically disconnected from myself. And I started to get the work. And it has been incredibly, incredibly painful work. I believe my body still carries the pain. I believe my body, the physical body, carries the shame, carries the trauma. And one of the ways I've learned to start to get that out of my body is by crying, by screaming, by kicking, thrashing around, doing whatever it is I need to do to release all that physical poison, all that toxicity that was poured into me. On March 28th of 2019, I was doing just that. I was in the supermarket and wishing I was dead. And there she was. She was about six feet tall. She was gorgeous. And I knew she's the answer. And I knew either I'm going to lust for her or I am going to die. And I made a decision to go home and to die. And I did just that. I went home and I started screaming and kicking and thrashing. And it was as if I was back in the river and I was drowning. And I was screaming at my mom. Someone pulled me out of the river and I'm physically experiencing this. And I was screaming at my mom that I did not want to be drugged anymore. And that went on. And it went on. And my wife was sitting on the sofa witnessing this. And she looked like that deer in the headlight kind of thing. And at some point in all that, something broke. And what I felt was that depression pouring out of my body and I felt I was sitting in a, in a squat position on the floor and I felt like I was now floating on the floor and I looked at my wife and I asked my wife and my dad I feel like the depression just finally after 55 years the depression finally broke and I must be dead and she told me, you're not dead, but you're bleeding out of your ear. And I looked at my wife and I said, I don't care if I'm bleeding out of both ears, my eyeballs, my nose, and my ass. I don't care. The depression is lifted. And it was the first time that I can remember in, in, in decades of feeling a sense in my heart that I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to get through this. That feeling lasted for about three weeks. Guys would see me coming in the meetings. I was floating. They thought I was manic. My wife thought I was manic. 
she insisted on going to this therapist I was working with, and the therapist convinced her, no, he's not manic. He's, for the first time in his life, he's experiencing being a human, being alive, a sense of adequacy, a sense of worthiness. Um, I wish that feeling continued, <laughs> but it eventually wore off and life became a lot more normal. The way I like to explain it, if you can picture a graph with a zero line and then a minus five and a plus five. For about 55 of my years, I lived somewhere between a negative five, which was, which was debilitating depression, and zero. From that point on March 28th, I've been hovering between a negative five and up some days as high as a positive one on that graph. And most days nowadays, I hover between a zero and a one on the positive side. I don't yet have a, a, a regular feeling of being happy, joyous, and free. But what I don't also have is that debilitating sense of shame, of, of unworthiness, of inadequacy. Most days, nowadays, I know that I matter. Most days, nowadays, I know that I am adequate. I am worthwhile. Um, I still struggle with that. I still sponsor a lot of people. I've been involved in service from the, from the day I came to SA. And uh, currently, I'm a, a delegate to our, our general delegate assembly. Um, and I know that I matter. I know that my voice, my experience, my strength matters. And I know that it offers hope to others. Um, but there's still that inner critical parent coming out of my childhood who tells me, Still, you don't matter. You're just a piece of shit. And and that's that seed, again, that Roy talked about, of that, that came down between him and his mom and between him and himself. That's the trauma that that he experienced that, that is what AA refers to as our underlying symptoms. AA would say that our alcoholism is but a symptom of an underlying disease. Our drug addiction, for me, my lust, is but a symptom of my underlying disease. And that underlying disease is shame. So today I'm working through that. Um, as I mentioned, I, I've gotten involved and I stay involved in service. It's really hard. And sometimes... <laughs> It's a real pain in the ass. We, we had a GDA assembly yesterday on Zoom. It was for four hours. <laughs> I don't like sitting for four hours in front of the Zoom camera thing, but I do it um, because it helps me to stay sexually sober today. It, it, it helps me to stay focused today, and it's helping me to begin to get connected. I still seek outside help today. Um, 
some may have heard the saying that that some of us are sicker than others yeah well that's me um i am definitely sicker than most others but today i recognize also i'm not the sickest and i'm definitely getting better um my concept of a higher power has changed tremendously since i've gotten sober i i was raised with a strong religious background that was punishing and today i've managed to discard all of that and i'm still working to find a higher power that that really works for me and it is the opposite of what i was raised with um and that's kind of where i'm at today uh i'll just add in there i'm still married to the same woman today um we've been married 38 years now um my wife is sober in aa 42 years we talk rigorously honest to each other every day at the end of the day we pray together um i get to surrender she gets to surrender and uh we're getting there we are we are definitely getting there um and that's my 25 minutes worth so thanks for listening okay everyone what was that was such a moving share um thank you so much that our speaker is buddy in pennsylvania uh that's yeah that touched on a lot of issues for me too um thank you so very much and now it is time for sharing uh or more specifically for the q a and in participation we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction we also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language the emphasis is on honesty recovery and healing how to apply the 12 steps and traditions to our daily lives no cross talk please which means interrupting giving advice or criticizing someone else's share if you feel someone's getting too explicit you may still signify by saying my hand is raised at which point i will consult the group conscience so we have quite a number of people on the line today and i would like to see if we can pack in as many questions as possible for a speaker uh, so please be brief if you'd like to ask a question please press star six state your name and your and location um, and ask our speaker a brief question thank you I'd like to go first. Uh, thank you, Irina. I just want to ask, um, where can I find the recording of this meeting? Hi, Nora. Um, I will send you the recording information. The blurb that I put in the WhatsApp group, it has the replay information. Um, or you can message me, and I'll connect you with that. Yeah, I messaged you here in the chat because uh, I don't have your contact. So please send me your contact. Thank you. That's fine. I'll, I'll talk to you in the group with that. Okay. Hi, Thank you so much. Hi, this is Katrin in Germany. Can I ask a question? <laughs> yes, Catherine in Germany. Come on in. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, buddy, for your share. Um, I, I was very moved when I heard it. And um, I am going through some shame attacks at the moment. And I write down affirmations with the help of my sponsor. They say something like, I matter, or they say something like, I'm worth the effort, because I always feel like I'm not worth the effort. 
Um, and what causes this shame for me is sometimes I realize just look, even just look, somebody looks at me and I feel like I want to disappear. Um, I, I don't know. My sponsor said I should surrender the shame every time it comes up, just like last. Um, but the thoughts that cause it are really persistent. Um, do you think that it needs outside help? Um, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I think I know you from the Barcelona meeting. Um, yes, I, I still seek outside help. I, I get uh, professional help once a week. Um, I also am in another 12-step program that really helps me to deal with the childhood um, dysfunctional issues. The biggest thing I do today with the shame is I don't try to stuff it. When I'm having a shame attack, I acknowledge it. I let myself experience it. I don't try to fight against it. I let myself experience it. I see the falseness of it. I see the lie behind it, and I let it go. Um, and, and it usually only lasts a minute or two. Um, I had that today before I started to speak, um, right right before the meeting was to start, the, the feelings were, I don't have anything worthwhile to share. Who wants to hear about somebody been 23 years sexually sober and still doesn't have happy, joyous, and free? That's a shame attack. And I talked with my wife about it. And she had reminded me that there's a whole lot of us who are still struggling with years of sobriety. And it's important that I carry my message and it has value. And with that, I was able to let go of the same attack and, and it passed. So that's what works for me. Thank you. Thank you All right. so much. Thank you. Thank you, Laura in Egypt, and Catherine in Germany. Who would like to be next? You'll need to press star six to unmute. Hi, I'm Mayor. I'm a sexaholic from New Jersey. Hi, Mayor. Um, Come on in. Hi. Hey. Um, Thanks so much for your share. That was like incredibly moving. Um, I, I'm dealing now with um, forgiveness of my parents. Um, I feel like I made an amends to my father, and um, I feel like my relationship with him is slowly um, improving. Uh, ups and downs, of course, but overall improving. Um, my mom, I just can't get over my resentments to her for um, calling me names and shaming me as a kid. And um, can you, do you have any ESH you could share about forgiveness? Thanks. Yes, yes I can. My, um, my dad drank himself to death before he was 61 years of age. Um, I never got to have a relationship with him. Um, as, as a father-son, like the kind of relationship every child is entitled to, every child deserves. 
his alcoholism got really worse after my brother's drowning and, and my dad never got recovery. And so what I started to do in, in sobriety is I started to write him letters about what I was feeling and what I was experiencing. And I, I went to his gravesite and I would sit by the, the gravesite and I would read the letters to him. And I did that and I kept doing that. And it took me probably 10 years maybe even longer to learn to forgive him. What also helped was for me to learn that, that this addiction, this sex addiction, my dad had it. Um, and all of these isms that it's, it's multi-generational, like his dad passed it on to him. His, my, my father's father left his family when my father was 12 years of age. My father was one of 13 children, and his father walked out on them. My dad was just as wounded as I was. Um, he was just another bozo on the bus, just like me. And through writing letters and visiting his gravesite and just talking to him, I was able to see. My dad gave me the best he could do. It sucked. It was not good enough, but it was all he had to give. Um, and and through that process of, of writing letters and, and, and visiting, um, I, I was slowly able to realize, like, he, he really, he gave me all the love he had. It, it wasn't enough, but it's all he had. Um, and out of that process came forgiveness. Um, my mom survived my dad by another 30 years. Um, with her, I just started visiting her. Um, I started like, going to see her once a week. Um, and in the later years, um, I started to care for her um, with her medicines, all the diabetes and blood pressure medicines and all that stuff. Um, and she lived to be 10 days shy of her 90th birthday um and and i got to be with her at her death um but again it was a process of just learning how to talk to my mom about about her childhood um her dad was in world war one had gotten injured um multi-generational alcoholism and trauma and and through the process of visiting with my mom, I, I learned to forgive her as well. And when she died, um, I, 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 I realized I had forgiven her. It, it's a process. It's painful. It's long, but it worked. That's all. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Mayor and New Jersey, for your question. Who else would like to ask our speaker, Buddy in Pennsylvania, a question? Hi, my name's my name's David, and I am a sexaholic. And um, 
This is my first uh, essay meeting. Um, oh, welcome to the fellowship, David. I just wanted to thank you. I just wanted to introduce myself. Um, and um, I wanted what to thank Buddy. Are? I'm in Connecticut. Okay. Go ahead. Continue, um, please. Yeah, so I just wanted to thank thank you, buddy. Um, I've got um, almost two years sober uh, from recover from from this addiction, and uh, just celebrated 31 years in, in AA. And um, I just I just your your share just really moved me, and I just wanted to introduce myself and say thank you. Thank you, David. Welcome to our fellowship. Keep yeah, definitely. <laughs> Keep coming back. All right. Anyone else with a question for our speaker today? Yeah, hi. This is Ken from Nashville. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah. Okay. Um, buddy, thank you. Thank you for um, your just sharing your story. It was very inspiring to me. And um, I guess my, my question is, as someone who is both a trauma shame survivor and one who in his addiction has created trauma and shame uh, in his family, um, I was arrested last year and, and, you know, had charges brought against me and has just, you know, created a lot of, lot of pain. So I've, I've experienced both sides of that. And now there are people, you know, whom I care deeply for that, you know, live with the trauma and shame that I've created. So just kind of that process like you talked about of forgiveness, I guess the forgiveness of self, just, you know, what experience, strength and hope can you give around that and work you've done or shared with others about? Thanks. Yeah. Forgiving myself, I, I think that is probably the hardest part. Um, what what is helpful for me is to recognize that I really didn't get, I wasn't really given any of the tools that I needed growing up to learn how to become a healthy, functioning adult. Those things weren't available to me. Um, so... I used whatever tools I could find, and unfortunately, every tool I used had that addictive nature to it. Um, the masturbation, the alcohol, the, the drugs, all of that um, all had the addictive component to it. But at the time, it was all I could find that could give me some kind of good feeling inside. Um, from when I heard about AA, from when I first got introduced to it, that process of recovery began to be kindled inside of me. And likewise for me, for SA, no one ever explained to me I could not comprehend that lust was a deadly sin. It just did not sink in because it's what allowed me to survive 
the trauma. It's what allowed me to overcome the shame. So when I finally heard of lust or sex as an addiction, I latched on to that because now someone was speaking a language I could understand. Now, I'm coming into SA at the age of 43, and yeah, I had done a lot of damage between the abortions and, and just all of that. But what I also had to learn is that I did the best I could under the circumstances I had with the tools that I knew about at the time. So just as I learned to forgive my father that he did the best he could do, I needed to learn to forgive myself that I did the best I could do at the time. Today, now that I, I know a better way, it's, it's, it's incumbent, I think the word is, it's incumbent upon me to use those tools. But I can't beat myself up for something that I didn't understand. I just, I'm dense. All my brain cells don't necessarily fire in the proper order. <laughs> I can't beat myself up for that. It's, it's self-defeating. That's also, for me, a manifestation of my addiction knocking on the door because it knows if it can get me to criticize myself and beat myself up, it'll start to make lust look attractive to me again. So I just don't entertain that, those, those thoughts. When, when I can find myself wanting to beat myself, I start to hear that and I start to surrender. I start to pray on that right away. And if I need to, I pick up the phone I call my sponsor. I'm blessed. I can talk to my wife about it. Um, and and today I see it, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna get me anywhere to, to get into that self blame kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if, if that's helpful or not. That's that's what works for me. Thank you, buddy. Very helpful. You're welcome. Okay, thank you, Ken, for that question. Uh, we're going to take a quick pause for announcement and come back to questions. How much more time would you be able to have for us, buddy, for more questions? Oh, I can hang around a while. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can assume you might have more on the to-do list, on the honey-do list. So, okay, so I'm going to pause the recording, and then we'll come back. I'm going to stop the recording, and then we'll come back. Uh, for more Q&A. So again, thank you so much, buddy, for your service. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.